All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Collectively Speaking. Um, We're very excited because this is actually our first show since we um, have been out of the office due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you've been keeping up with us on social media, our office have have been um, closed, but you can still reach us at um, our inbox at ujimainfo at ujimacommunity.org. There's plenty of resources on our website. We've been updating that periodically. Um, So if you're looking for information for students, for your children, small businesses, grant information, anything under the sun dealing with COVID-19, just head on over to ujimacommunity.org and you can find those details there. Again, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us um, via email at ujimainfo. Sorry, ujimainfo excuse me, <laughs> ujimainfo at ujimacommunity.org is the email address that you can reach us at. So don't hesitate to ask any questions if you have any concerns. And um, also keeping up to date with webinars and events, virtual events that we will continue to have online. Um, those will also be uh, sent out via email. But uh, let's get into our guest today. We are going to be talking about um, reintegrating students back into the education system post-COVID-19. So, you know, we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, pre-COVID and then um, what it looks like for students um, after they return to school. So we have a special guest um, here today, uh, Dr. Lena Bates. Can you uh, pronounce your middle name for me? (laughs) So Lana Asuncion is my maiden name. Bates is my married name. Lana Asuncion Bates. Lana Bates. Asuncion. Okay. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> um, um, Dr. Bates is an experienced and enthusiastic cultural proficiency and diversity practitioner, consultant, and advocate with over 20 years of experience in the field of education. She has a doctorate in school psychology and has used her array of skills, including counseling, uh, data analysis, research, assessment and policy creation and implementation to help educational institutions better serve marginalized student populations. Wow. Uh, she, has a, uh, she has a demonstrated history of work in the public, private, and higher education school settings, as well as with local, state, and community agencies. Currently, Dr. Bates is the Director of Equality and Inclusion at, the, at an independent school in Maryland. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Bates. I was introduced to you by um, my deputy director who just spoke highly of you. And she said that you would be amazing for this show. So welcome and thank you for your time. Absolutely, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's start out with uh, distance learning has definitely been a new venture for both parents, students and teachers. And I think across the board, there has been um, a feel of this frustration. And then obviously some some parents, students and teachers have loved it while others um, have found it to be um, kind of kind of there's a disconnect there. I've gotten the feedback on. So my question to you is, uh, what do you believe some of the obstacles have been for students, teachers and parents when it comes to distance learning? Yeah. Uh, So well, to back up. what we see and what I guess what I'm not surprised and I'm sure a lot of other people are not surprised by is the fact that distance learning has highlighted um, a number of different ways that the educational system is inequitable and how the educational system is still um, not centering 
brown and black people. So what we've done is we've taken an educational system that has um, been created to um, not meet the needs of all students and we've just substituted one mode of um, delivery for another. So we have the same issues highlighted in different ways, uh, but the same issues around equitable access to education um, through distance learning. So um, <clears throat> that's shown up in a number of different ways. Um, and sometimes it gets overwhelming because the more ways you find uh, that the systems are inequitable, it's like a rabbit hole, it just keeps going. So I know that some of the frustrations on the surface um, for folks, um, and I can't, I can't uh, speak for everybody's experience. Um, I can only kind of speak for mine and, and those people that I have been um, in contact with or, or within kind of my bubble is of course this idea of how do I maintain my uh, workload um, while trying to be a teacher to my child. Um, I'm in that exact situation. I'm actually supporting other people's children while my child is, uh, you know, has uh, gone native, run savage, just turned into, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 she, she's gone on supervised for a long amount of time, more than she should. Um, so, because I'm still working. So <clears throat> it's that typical, um, and I'm an educator, so I at least know, you know, in some fundamental ways, what I could do with her, what should be done, but not every parent is an educator. So I'm, I'm even coming from that point of, of privilege in the sense that I understand what should be done. Um, <clears throat> so that surface level, just the, the, the you know, the kind of the, the tension between um, all the other duties that you have um, and now the child of yours that you want to give the best to, um, you know, many parents are feeling like they're failing and they can't do it all. Um, another piece, I think, to it, too, is that students were forced into this kind of new way of learning. My daughter, I have a 13-year-old and a 3-year-old, and my 13-year-old had to adjust, um, and I think she could adjust a little bit more because she had been used to screens, you know, before all of this. It was kind of like we had to limit screen time. You can't be on YouTube all day. You can't be doing TikTok all night. Uh, but my 3-year-old, I noticed it was really interesting as she's a very social outgoing and what I realized a hands-on person. And when she was trying to understand seeing her classmates on this, you know, screen, this two-dimensional screen, um, she withdrew and she was not engaged in the Zoom classes. And she was not, it was not something that she enjoyed. It was overwhelming. She didn't understand it. She couldn't touch the people. Everybody's talking at the same time. And so it was a really, big and she still is not, that still is not her preferred way of interacting with her school. And so for her, it actually, I think in some ways at the beginning made it harder for her, even though the intention was to connect her um, to her classmates and all, I think it made it harder for her. Um, so the idea of how this is presented for some kids is, is different, it's hard. Um, and then you get into the like kind of going outside of just like the, uh, the everyday experiences of the students and the, and the, and the parents and start thinking about a little bit around the, um, the implications that this has for how children are 
actually getting what is supposed to be free and appropriate education, right? What is supposed to be their, their rights as citizens. I'm privileged that my children have um, not only access to internet, but their own devices to use internet. It's uh, reliable. They have places in their room where they can work or in their house where they can work. Um, you know, so I have, my, my children have that privilege. Um, I know I've spoken to some teachers in um, city schools and whereas my concerns are, you know, too much screen time or not, my kids not being um, motivated or engaged. There are city school teachers who are saying, you know, we don't have an online virtual school capacity. We don't have the, our kids don't have the ability to have uh, a screen and, and reliable internet that um, people can pay for and, and, and afford. They don't necessarily have the space to sit and do school all day long. Um, so this idea of assuming that this could be a transferable way of delivering education is a horrible assumption. Okay. Idea that assuming that our kids are learning this way, we don't have any metrics to show rate of growth around um, what they knew before they started this and what they know now. We don't have any ways to measure, um, you know, the impacts that this is having on them social, emotionally, psychologically, what we're probably gonna do is probably have after the fact, you know, studies to say and show, longitudinal studies to say and show what the impact of distance learning has been on the population as a whole. But right now we are continuing with the same educational system and we're substituting one piece for another. And that's always what we've done. Um, with the educational system. So like I said, it doesn't do anything more than highlight and marginalize the, uh, or highlight the uh, inequities. So we have students um, who don't have access. Um, we have students who, they are essential workers. Some of our high school students are essential workers now. They have to go into the restaurants and part-time jobs were, you know, working at Chipotle or working at Subway, and now they're doing it all day long so that they can have money so for their family. So we're assuming that kids even have the ability to be in the school building or be in front of a, 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 a computer. We have children who are essential workers who are out there trying to help their families. And then those who are not might still be out there trying to help their families because financially, this has made an impact financially where education was supposed to be their God-given right uh, or, 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 you know, the, the right that the United States has said that you have um, access to because you are a citizen, that's been taken away because the financial constraints now have uh, surpassed their uh, ability to be in school. Mm -hmm. We have seen a lot of implicit bias around people um, viewing other people's spaces in the house. So, um, when kids, when students do have the ability to be on devices and learning, they've been subjected to comments about their living conditions and comments about, you know, um, who's in the house with them and how their house looks. And so now, you know, so we have the implicit bias that these students would be experiencing in 
the school building. It's now in their home environment. Um, so again, just, such, just kind of just a switch and bait, you know, of just the same types of uh, uh, biases, the same type of stereotypes, the same types of injustices that our kids are experiencing in the school building they're experiencing um, outside of the school building and their own homes, if they even have the ability to um, access the way that learning has been, is being delivered to them now, because it is still within the same racialized institutional systems that it has always been. Schools were created not for people of color. They were created to maintain the social status and class of white males. And school systems have never changed. They've only um, forced circles into squares um, and just changed the way they deliver the same ideology. And that is just what we're seeing with distance learning and COVID-19 now. And so as an educator, number one, do you foresee this being a part of our new normal, this distance learning? And if so, what is your biggest fear for um, the marginalized community? Yeah, I think what this is helping us, what I think the important piece and what I think um, education at our education system, again, it just shows, I hate to sound so cynical um, because I am an educator, but I also have been in the system for a very long time. It shows how slow we are to be progressive in the way that we do education. There are countries around the world that are running circles around us and how we do education. So I think what we can learn from this is all the different ways that technology can and should be used to enhance our learning, to enhance the experience for our students. Teachers are now being forced to look outside of the ways that they were comfortable with and, 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 and um, using technology and getting comfortable with technology. Our kids are there. Our kids are teaching us about the technology. You, you see parents all the time going to their four or five or six year old saying, how do you, you know, how do you do this? What's the password for that? How do you, you know, what's that? So our kids are there and our, if, if, we're, if our job is to educate, how are we educating if we are so behind them? We always learn from our children and that's actually a wise thing to do, but that's, they shouldn't be teaching us. <laughs> they shouldn't be teaching us everything. So technology, hopefully people are understanding how this can be used There's a lot of people in the, in the tech ed field that have been, that this is probably, you know, nirvana for them now. Um, people are finally seeing their use. People are finally, you know, coming to them and asking them, how do I integrate this? How do I, so using technology to enhance learning, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be a situation where after this, we will have seen the benefits of how to use it when it's used effectively and efficiently to um, increase the effectiveness of our educational um, delivery. Um, so that, that's what I'm hoping can come out of it. And I'm hoping that our students, um, that this is motivating the learners that are being um, uh, exposed to this. I'm hoping that it'll motivate them to come up with ways to innovate their learning. I'm hoping that this experience will help them, um, you know, help create a new generation of of students, of kids, of people who are tech-minded and tech-oriented and, and uh, getting involved. There's a lot of businesses now, startup businesses that are thinking of ways to deliver technology um, or education through technology. So, you know, we're seeing innovation in those different ways, some places that 
again, were ignored and now kind of being, um, they're being accessed. I, I ordered a, a, a box. I, I used to get boxes like style delivery box, like, you know, wardrobe in a box, like that. It was like wardrobe in a box. And then it was, you know, food delivery. So now I'll get, I'll get food, um, you know, ingredients. And I just ordered um, STEM activities for my child in a box. So like all of a sudden now I'm seeing these businesses where it's like, teach your child at home, teach them this and that. And so like all these new businesses are coming up with, you know, ways to integrate uh, STEM, art and all that at home and activities at home. So that's a good thing, right? Like that's a, regardless if school gets back into the brick and mortar way of delivery, I'm still going to be interested in these activities and things that I can purchase for my child and have them delivered every month. Um, that, you know, match her developmental uh, level and match her interests. So it's those types of innovations that I think um, that's just one example of, you know, what, what we're seeing um, as a benefit from this. Um, oh, the impact, again, what I know is that we will not know what the full impact of this is until years to come. Mm -hmm the impact of this is going to ripple for so long. I, I wanna say probably a generation, if not longer. And the impact is going to be felt mostly by our black and brown, particularly our black and brown who are lower socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Again, in every conceivable way that you can imagine, um, our students and our families will be impacted. So it's it's the access to education, the educational achievement, the trim, the trauma. We haven't even touched the trauma. Yeah. Everybody, not just our brown and black, but again, when we have situations, systemic occurrences, people are impacted differently. And the brown and black people, particularly the ones who are underserved and under-resourced, are impacted always more so than everyone else. So um, all of the trauma, all of the disruption, all of the chaos, all of the panic, all of the anxiety and stress, all of the uncertainty, all of the financial losses, all of the uh, health um, guarantees, all of the uh, structural community and familial structures that were in place before, all of those protective things have been taken away and, 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 and more and more and more negative uh, factors have been introduced at a higher rate. So and we, we won't know the true impact of this for a while. Um, and it, it's just a continuation of things yeah. that have gone before. Yeah. And it will be a continuation of things that continue after this. Which I'm sure as as an educator, especially in, in the line of work that you do, is obviously very frustrating because um, it's like, where do we go from here? Um, and not knowing how to, um, not having the data so that you know how to support students, how to know how to support these students. Um, I'm sure it's gonna be frustrating because I think about um, on a global scale, how do, we, how, how do we come out of this on a global scale at the end? Um, because like you said, you have countries who are running circles around us already. Um, what are we going to look like post-COVID? 
Well, and here's the thing. We don't have the data on how this is going to impact us, but we have enough data on how situations like this have impacted us that we already know what we should do. Okay. Katrina is a perfect example that a lot of people in the public policy arena have been referencing that I've been learning a lot because public policy is not necessarily my, um, the water that I've swam in a lot. So I'm learning a lot. And a lot of, and, and, and what, we, what we learned from Hurricane Katrina, again, it was a smaller kind of a, a little microcosm in the sense that it was more based in one area, but the, uh, the impacts and the, uh, all the conditions were very similar. And there were a lot of things that we saw, again, as far as how broken the structure is. And there was a lot of things, even within the education system that provided opportunities for us to learn. Um, we have the data we already know when anything happens on a negative, on a, on a scale, a, a national scale, we already know who's going to be impacted um, first, who's going to be impacted the, the worst. So we have enough data predictors and we have enough data to provide constructs to help us predict how this is going to impact our marginalized groups, where we don't have the energy around is the people in power to make a change so that these things don't continue to impact the same people in the same ways that they have always been doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the data that we get is just going to reinforce what we already know. And it's going to give us a, a clearer picture of how bad things are today at this point. Um, but we have the data, we have enough information, we already know how this is going to impact um, and what we can, you know, we have the ability to do things differently. It's just a matter of mobilizing that energy and getting the people in power that will pay attention to this um, and, and do the things that are needed to make a difference. We don't have to go back to the, the new normal to me is, is, I don't want to go back to the normal. I don't want to go back to the pathology that we had. I don't want to go back to the broken system that we had. This is an opportunity for us to change the system. And we've had these opportunities come up before. It's what we've done with it that has made the difference. So the system is cracking open. People are seeing it. People are experiencing it in different ways. We have the opportunity to change it so that it's not a new normal. It's a new new. But, <laughs> you know, we have to have the energy and the motivation and the power to actually change it in meaningful ways. Sure. Um, so when we talk about, let, let's talk about like the mental health of, of the students. Mm -hmm. Have you received any feedback around how kids are handling, say the social distancing mentally? How are they handling being taught um, from a distance? You spoke about your youngest, you know, seeing her friends on this, you know, on this screen. Um, and we know how important socialization is to, uh, especially little people, you know, um, getting them socialized as a part of growth. Um, what is some of the feedback you're getting around how kids are dealing with this? Uh, um, overall, I think um, kids are, uh, it's impacting them in, in some um, uncomfortable ways. I in general. But I'm, what I know is that kids, uh, depending on their age, depending on their characteristics, their resiliency, their protective factors, you know, there's different ways that they will uh, adapt to this situation. 
um, depending on a lot of different factors. But I think what we can say in general is that from little to big, uh, kids are experiencing um, either a heightened level of stress if they've already had stress in them, and you know, especially as they get older, but there's always some type of stress in, in the kid's life, no matter how perfect their life is. So there's a heightened level of stress um, and that, and then, and then that shows up differently and that's different and in different intensity, depending on the child's situation and circumstances. Um, we do know that this idea of isolation, um, is, is, uh, harmful to humans in general. Um, so being unable <clears throat> to see and touch and hear and smell, you know, the people and the things that you're used to, that impacts us um, in neurological ways and impacts us psychologically. Again, how deeply impactful that is depends on the protective factors and the resiliency factors that are inherent in each child's unique situation. But I think generally overall, we can see that heightened, you know, the heightened stress and the heightened uh, negative impacts of uh, social interactions. Um, for our children who already had, uh, you know, moderate to, to severe mental health issues, particularly around mood. So like your students who are um, dealing with depression, your students who are dealing with um, anxiety, um, those types of things, they're very much on our radar because we don't, not only do we not have the ability to not only do those students not have the ability to interact, but we don't have even the ability to actually identify them in ways that we would be able to if they were in the school building. And this was happening, but we were still in school. Those kids are with us most of the day. So we have the opportunity to kind of see and monitor and provide resources and support for those students. It's very hard to do that um, when you only are able to see the child um, on you know, Zoom calls for a certain amount of time a day. They don't have access to you. Um, I know a lot of, I'm not, I'm not practicing as a school psychologist in my, in my current role, but the way that I develop relationships with kids is they were coming past my office and they would sit down and we would just talk. They don't have that anymore. And scheduling a Zoom call, it's not the same. Uh, access and the ability to um, support the students who already had these issues is very hard. We also know that um, a lot of kids, particularly kids, are identified and supported um, through school. School is a major mental health delivery. Mm -hmm. okay? And so when you're not here uh, at school, um, if there's any situations that are happening at home, um, you know, I, I read that the Child Protective Services has a dramatic decrease in uh, reports of child abuse. And the domestic violence support systems also have a dramatic decrease in calls um, and reports of domestic violence because people are isolated. And so there's no one else that can see what's happening behind closed doors. So children who are in situations where home wasn't safe are now trapped at home, <laughs> right? Houses and significant others and family members, elder, family members who might be, have been being abused, um, you know, all of those people who were home, anybody where home wasn't safe are now trapped at home. Mm -hmm. So you have them dealing with 
the trauma of being in an unsafe environment by themselves or with very limited resources. So that's going to cause um, a lot of uh, considerations with reentry. You also have people who everything given, you know, all things being equal and all things being okay, have lost family members, have lost friends um, from COVID-19 or other things because, you know, because hospitals are not available or because, you know, healthcare is not there. They might have died from something else. It might not have even been COVID-19, but losing family members and or having very sick family members, um, that's trauma, right? And that's increased. So it's hard enough to lose a family member. It's worse when that family member um, maybe could have survived if, if the medical care was, was more available or, um, you know, maybe that family member had COVID and they were not around to be able to say goodbye to them because people who have COVID-19 are dying by themselves. Uh, not being able to have funerals. You know, people are attending funerals through Zoom. Those ways that we deal with grief, the ways that we're able to um, close the circle on grief, those have been um, significantly interrupted. So that's going to and that's going to provide a source of unresolved grief, you know, and unresolved trauma um, that our kids are experiencing. Kids are at home now for more than they've ever had to be at home before. So things that are going on between, you know, family members, uh, conflict or trauma and things like that that kids may not have been exposed to because they were at school are now being exposed to that and, and maybe even more because adults are having trauma and they're trying to manage the best way they can. Um, so, you know, so many windows mm -hmm. on and on, um, but there will not be a new normal. Um, I think there's, there's gonna be a new new and how we define that new new is based on us, but it will not be like it was before. And that is trauma and that is traumatic. And yeah deserves space for grief to know that we'll not be the way that we were before. I will not be the same person that I was. When I say goodbye to my kids for spring break, I'm, I will not be the same. I'm not the same person. I'm not the same Dr. Bates. When I get back to that school, I'm not the same Dr. Bates and those kids are not the same. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so what are some other things you, you believe that schools can do to help support? Uh, students, parents, and teachers during a time like this outside of the learning? Uh, the first thing they need to do, and that's where I get back to that data, is that you got to know who your families are, who they were, who they are, and who they might be. Because people, families are changing. So you got to know who, when I say knew who, know who they were, know who the marginalized families were, know who the families that already were kind of starting behind the curve with not having resources, not having, um, you know, access to whatever. Know who those, make sure you know who those are because like I said, those are the ones that are gonna be most severely impacted. So you have to know who those, those folks were um, because they're gonna be more in, impacted now. You have to know where, who, who, who your family members, who your families are, where they are now. There's some people who were doing great and then overnight, things change for them, whether it was due to financial issues, whether it was due to health crises, what have you. So those families, you know, know who they are now, identify those families who are, who are once doing okay for all intents and purposes and now are not. 
and keep the communication open, the data ability to, to understand who your families are going to be. So tomorrow you might have a family whose life drastically changes. Next week, you have a family whose life drastically changes. You'll have a family whose life is drastically changed for the fifth time next Tuesday. So you're going to const you need to know who your families are, who they were, who they are, and who they will be, what they might become. Um, you have to keep a finger on your pulse on that because you will not be able to give the resources that they need if you don't know what it is that they need. And that is the, you know, blinders, educational systems have blinders, we kind of think, especially when those are in power, those people in power think that people need the things that they need, right? So if you are a principal and you come from a certain level of privilege, you might think, okay, well, all of our kids need computers. All of our kids need access to internet. But if you are not living in a situation where you are, you know, you're, you're 17 years old and taking care of your children because, or your sisters and brothers, because your mother is an essential worker and she's living downstairs so that she doesn't infect the other family members. A computer may not be what these kids need. Mm -hmm. They probably need something else. So you have to know who your families are and you have to ask the question, the people in power sitting around the table, making the decisions have to say, is everybody in our community represented? Do we have a voice from everybody in our community represented at this table? Because I'm not gonna be able to know everybody's experience and you're not gonna be able to know everybody's experience, but together collectively, we know that we have voices from everybody that represents our community, then together we have a better chance of understanding what everyone in our community needs. So I think it's really important for the people in power to understand that they have a limited perspective on what it is that their families need and their kids need so they need to have everybody that represents their community at the table so they have an idea of what their, um, what their families need. Um, so that data, that, you know, however that's done, if it's surveys, again, there's, you know, there's inherent biases in surveys, um, in surveying data, but you have to figure out ways that you can collect the data, if it's home visits, if it's phone calls, if it's going to community churches and, and, and community buildings, sending information to those local centers that have connections with the communities and saying, we need to know how you're feeling. You need to have a relationship with these families because that's another piece and that's a foundational piece. You can ask all the questions you want, but if your families don't trust your institution, they're not gonna give you the information that you need. So maybe it's starting with building relationships and maybe it's starting with helping your families understand that you really are here to help them. And if that is not true, then it is reflecting on your institution to see where it is that you have broken down the ability to um, create trust in your constituent group so that they can come to you for help. So sometimes it stops with, it starts with the institutions looking at themselves before they look out and say, how can we help? A lot of people like to help and a lot of people like to give and a lot of people like to do and we call that, uh, depending on how it's done, toxic charity, because you giving and doing and helping based off of your own perceptions of what you think needs to be done, what you think is not right, and what you think needs, you know, what, where you think help is needed. And many times, you don't ask the people what they, what, it, what they need. And you don't ask the people how they can also help themselves and have been helping themselves and, and utilize those strengths and how they can help you. Mm -hmm. So institutions can learn 
from these marginalized groups because these are the groups that are impacted the most, but these are also the groups that have all the grit, all the resiliency, all the improvisation, all of the ways to make it happen. They can inform the institutions. Well, we didn't have a computer, but this is how I taught my kids how to live in a pandemic. <laughs> these are the skills that they learned. The, you know, so these folks, the schools, it is about helping our, our, our constituent groups, but it's also about making sure that we learn from them. We leverage the social capital that our groups have. There is never a situation where one person has all the answers and the other person just has their hand out waiting to be helped. Right. It always can be a symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship. So the ways that we can help is to find out what they need, what they truly need. And we also can help by leveraging their strengths to enhance our institutions. And I remember when we initially spoke, you made a good point when you said that when you um, support the, um, the under-resourced communities, everyone gets supported at the end of the day. Can you uh, kind of go back to that and elaborate on that? Yes, and I have to give credit. I'm going to see if I can find the name because I should already know this. It comes from, I learned about this from um, an article that described the curb cut effect mm -hmm. and the curb, C-U-R-B cut, C-U-T effect. Um, and this was an article, I'm looking at it, I'm looking for it as I speak. This was an article written, so I need to make sure I give proper, uh, uh, proper props. Um, <laughs> Um, you can maybe insert the, the article um, in the author of the article. It's um, Angela Glover Black Blackwell. That's who it is. That's who it is. Yes. Um, the curb cut effect. And so basically, just a history about that. Uh, like I said, American Disabilities Act sometime around in the 1950s required that uh, people who had disabilities should have access to public spaces the same way that someone without a disability. And this is really like physical disabilities, wheelchairs, people with uh, um, walking um, devices, assistive devices, that they should have access to public spaces the same way that someone who is uh, mobile on two feet um, has access. So that means being able to access buildings through stairs. That means being able to have safe places to have uh, for sidewalks, so sidewalks would be large enough to accommodate wheelchairs, and people should be able to, with disabilities, should be able to access these sidewalks by having curb, what they created, which was curb cut. So when you think about walking on a sidewalk anywhere, there's always, there should be <laughs> always a place for someone who can, at the time, was so someone who, can, who was using some type of mobile, uh, like a wheelchair to access a, a sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So that was created, and that was for a, a small, I mean, if you look at the numbers, a small number of people in the United States with physical disabilities, when you think of the overall number of people. So this was, this was fought for for a small number of people that said this small group, uh, minimal in number compared to the whole United States, but this small group deserves access. So we're going to make all of these accommodations across the United States for this, for this small group. And there was some sufficient money that was put into public, um, public works 
um, the public department around making sure that this was accessible, that this was done. So buildings had ramps, there was elevators that had access, you know, uh, AD, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, people with disabilities had different ways of accessing all types of public spaces. Curb cuts were one of them. Fast forward to today, even though that uh, accommodation intervention was created for a very small number of people um, for, so that they could have access like everyone else, it has now become something that people who do not have disabilities expect to have. So this curve cut that was created for people with disabilities has now become something that a mother with a stroller is using, a runner is using, a kid on a bike is using, Mm -hmm. um, older segways, these kids on these segways. Now it is required for anyone who even who does not even have a disability. It's required and they're looking for and they're expecting that accommodation. So what this is showing us is that if you if you identify the most impacted, the most marginalized group of people and focus your resources on helping them by proxy, you will help everyone else. And it will come to a point where everyone else will expect the same things that you created these interventions for the most marginalized to receive. So if we have a, 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 if we have a limited amount of money, if we have a limited amount of resources, if we have a limited amount of time and energy, focus it on the people who need it the most. And you will see that if you focus on helping them, Everybody else by proxy will be benefited, positively benefited, like the curve cut. Yep, and I, I thought that was an excellent example that you gave, um, just so that uh, our listeners could have an understanding about what you mean and what we mean when we talk about, you know, the under-resourced communities and how everyone is supported, you know, when we support them and look at their needs. And then, you know, it, it kind of blossoms into other spaces for those who can um, who who can uh, make use of these resources as well as they're coming into these um, communities. It's, it kind of touches on that tension when you uh, back in the day when you had the whole Black Lives Matter and then All Lives Matter and Police Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and it was all that and people I found myself and other people really struggling to help folks understand why we're censuring Black lives. So it kind of is, is that if you censure we know from all the data and from all the research um, and from all the experiences, which is just as valid as data and research, that Black people in a racialized America are the ones who are disproportionately affected um, negatively for with negative circumstances, um, overrepresented in, in, in other circumstances as far as incarceration, special education, all that. We know that from a for a fact. Um, when we say center Black people, when we say Black Lives Matter, we're centering Black people. When we say that, it is not the ex at the expense of everyone else. As a matter of fact, if you focus on that, then everyone else will actually benefit. Right. So to this idea of, you know, the tension that people feel, well, if you, why are you just focusing on this person? Or why are you just focusing on well, all, absolutely all lives matter. And when all lives matter, and there's a certain life that doesn't matter, focus your energy on that, ma on that life and then everyone else will be impacted positively. And then everyone, and then everyone else will matter. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found that just helpful for me to kind of circumvent that 
Um, because what that is, is just the, a, a diluting of the real issue and the real problem. And if you don't identify the root cause, you will never be able to uproot the weed. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it helps, it's helpful to focus and zoom in on what is truly necessary um, to help everything flourish and everything grow. Absolutely. And um, so we've been speaking mainly about what's been going on during the pandemic as far as education. And um, so let's look at a little bit of post-COVID. So also when we spoke, we spoke about a uh, needs assessment, which I thought was really, really important. And as you were describing this, um, so we talked about this needs assessment and reintegrating kids back in the school system. Um, how is the needs assessment helpful? What does it do for the school system? What does it do for the community? So I'm, I'm uh, I am biased in the sense that I am a big proponent of data. It's been helpful for me in this work that I do um, around diversity, equity, and inclusion because it circumvents a lot of barriers, emotional barriers that people will put up when we start talking about diversity. It also is just factual, and that having facts is kind of a white supremacist ideology um, because a white supremacist ideology negates personal experience, it negates intuition, and it, it, it negates a sense of inner knowing. But as we work in this system of white supremacy, um, knowing the tools that help circumnavigate it are helpful until we can dismantle it all. So data um, is the piece that I use to help me navigate these systems and get the outcomes that I, that I uh, want and anticipate. So a needs assessment is a, is a data point. Um, so not only does it, and not only does it give you the data, not only does it help you say, okay, this is how we need to direct our resources. This is who needs um, the resources, but it also psychologically sets up a relationship between you and the person, if you're doing it correctly, between you and the person that you're serving, because you're asking them what do you need with the assumption that you'll be able to provide or attempt to provide what they need. So if you have a system that is asking you what you need, you're, you're increasing your ability to um, uh, promote a positive relationship between the people that you're serving. So it gives you data. It helps you construct the resources and direct the resources to where they need to be. It sets up a relationship and, and it can be an ongoing relationship. Um, the person can, can you know, say, okay, they asked me what I needed before and they delivered. I need something again. This is, what I, this is who I can go to. And... It also sets up a, a situation where there's more of a desire and trust to support the institution. So many times people will want to support the places and the, and the people that help them. So you are creating an ability for these institutions to, um, again, leverage the capital of the, of the constituent groups that they are serving so that those groups now become um, more, more, perhaps more inclined to support them, to offer their services, to offer their talents. And it creates a true sense of community. So there's a practical use and a practical reason behind understanding who your constituent groups are based off of a needs assessment. And there's also a psychological relationship, community-oriented um, uh, positive impact of creating a needs assessment. And it also helps you to be able to monitor um, and, and um, take account of your resources and how they're being distributed so that if you have goals that you've set 
you can look, if you have the data, you can look and say, okay, we met this goal or no, we didn't meet this goal. We weren't effective in this way and that way. So it helps give you, gives you, it helps give you feedback on how you're doing and how you can improve uh, so that you can, you can better meet the outcomes. And um, how often, how often do you suggest these needs assessments need to be done? It really does depend um, on what it is that you're offering and what you're, what you're asking, what your outcome is. What I would suggest is that um, a needs assessment, depending on, again, what it is, what you're offering, what the outcome is, that is continuous for a while, um, that, and there's different data times that, you know, times that you can grab data, grab data from, because like I said, things are going to be, things are changing and are going to be changing. So you might have a snapshot of a community last week that can drastically change this week, will drastically change once things start to reopen, will drastically change once kids go back to school. So you're going to have to identify ahead of time, where are the areas that are the times that you feel like you want to grab the data. Um, and so you do want it to be ongoing for a while. Um, and you have to be able to understand what you're asking and making sure you're asking the, the right questions. Again, making sure when you construct that needs assessment, who's at the table, creating the needs assessment, do you have the voices of the people? Particularly, you should have an over-representation of the voices of people that you're attempting to serve, the most marginalized groups. They should be overrepresented at the table. Um, but making sure that you have the right, you're asking the right, right questions, have the uh, right people at the table creating that, that survey or however, thinking about the delivery of it, making sure that you're uh, making sure that everybody can access. So if it's online, making sure everybody can access that. If it's, you know, if it's, you know, if you have to do follow-ups with calls or home visits, like I said, all those different ways that you can reach out to the neighborhood and to the communities, but making sure that everyone can get the information. Uh, so, you know, there's things that you have to understand and take, you know, put in place. It's not just a coming up with a couple questions and then uh, putting it in your, you know, your child's uh, uh, electronic Google folder and say, hey, tell your parents to fill this out. Like there's ways that you have to create it, be intentional about what, what the questions you ask, the relationship that you have, how you're delivering the needs assessment, how you're capturing and when you're capturing the data and how you're using the data to inform um, your actions. Um, and then communicating it back. And that's an important piece with data is when you collect it from people, you want to communicate back to them what you've done with them. You want to communicate back to them that you've heard them, that you used it, um, and this is what you've done with it. Because part of people not trusting data is that they never see where it goes and what happens to it. And, you know, they take the time out to give their, their opinions or their needs or whatever, and they don't know exactly how that's been used. So communicating back to your constituency group of what, what you've learned, what... Um, what feedback that they have and kind of, you know, closing that communication loop. So it's very, it's, it, uh, it can, you can get very specific and I don't want to get in the weeds with it. Um, but it's, it's, you know, again, over time, you want to get different data points, making sure that you have everybody at the table when you create this needs assessment so that you can ask the right questions, making sure the delivery of it is accessible to all making sure that um, you are using the data effectively to, to, to divert your resources where they need and communicating back to your constituent groups what you've done with it and getting feedback from them about how to make the process better. Okay, and then, um, and you may or may not know um, about this, is, is this form of assessment done, um, reg not regularly, but is this form of assessment available in various school districts or just or is this something that um, is now being uh, thought of because of our current situation? 
So this a needs assessment is a general term, and you and you've probably seen that needs assessments were used with different in different right. ways with different names, right? right. So yes, educational systems. Um, for example, for COVID nineteen, the parents might have received a survey or some information saying, you know. Um, this is what your kids are going to need when they do virtual school. They'll need a, a, a laptop. They'll need a quiet space. Um, you know, let us know if, you know, you don't have these things or let us know if you have any questions or issues. That's a, that's a very, you know, kind of simple needs assessment, right? You're just asking, you're saying this is what's needed. If you don't have it, let us know. Um, that's, that's a very simple, simple, uh, simple fly, simplified form of that. And, that can, and it can get very expansive to, I mean, honestly, the U.S. Census is an example of a needs assessment, mm -hmm. right? You send out this survey to everybody and you ask them questions about who's in their, in their uh, household and what the income is and what, you know, because you're, you're trying to identify needs right. that you have so that you can divert resources um, to those communities. So that's a, that's a kind of a global, large example of a, a needs assessment. Mm -hmm. um, so we do this all the time, and it's not just like a template or just one way of doing it. Um, and, you know, we, we do it in, in multiple ways, in formal and informal ways. Um, so school systems, I think, probably in some ways are doing it. The, the best ones are doing it in a very formalized, structure, uh, in, uh, um, intentional way, kind of close to what I described earlier. Um, and then there's informal ways that, that school systems are doing it. I think the best way is to be formal to say this, we are trying to get this information from our community so that we can provide for our community. So being very clear about what it is, I think it's the best way so people know, okay, this is what this is. Um, and like I said, going through those steps of making sure you're getting the data um, and uh, being able to, to analyze it and, and use it effectively. Um, so school systems are doing it in different ways. Some of them are calling it needs assessment. Some of them have a completely different name but it basically is getting information from your constituent groups to see where, did it, where it is that they are and, and whatever parameter so that you can better serve them. Sure, understood, yeah. Um, I just wanted some clarity around, um, you know, when school districts do this, um, what information is being uh, asked, how is it being utilized, um, are they effective? Yeah. I think, I think in general, for COVID-19, in general, and I, I, I could be missing some things, but I think general, people want to, schools want to know financially where people are, resources, technology, particularly with virtual school, technology resources that people have. I would hope that schools would want to know, and schools have to kind of be careful about this, but I would want, I would hope that they want to know social emotional factors that are impacting the kids and the families. The reason why I say you have to be careful about that is because many people in schools are mandated reporters, meaning that if you ask the question and you get an answer that is not um, in the affirmative or positive, that you have, then you, you have to follow up, right? So if you ask questions about, is there domestic violence happening in the house or are children being abused and you get that data, you have to, if, a school, if it's a school system, you have to follow up with that. So you have to be careful about those questions, but it's important to know what kind of mental, social, emotional um, stance the families are in and the kids are in because if nothing else, you wanna be able to prepare for that when they come back. So financial, um, technology resources, I would think some type of social, emotional, mental health. Um, 
you know, and that can be broken down into different ways, but, um, you know, has there been a significant change in um, household income? Has there been significant change in living arrangements? Has there been a significant change in the way that your family structure, like, you know, has someone, basically has someone died or has been very sick? Um, you know, how that's impacted you all? Has there been significant change? Um, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of the way the questions are, are kind of maybe asked is what, has there been a significant change? You want to be careful though, because like I said, some folks are already marginalized. So it may not be a significant change for a family who was, you know, two working parents who were, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars. And now all of a sudden both are employed. That might be more significant than the family who was already struggling. And this is just another layer of struggle. One family might say, yeah, you know, the, 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 the parent, two household parent might say, yeah, this is significant. Whereas another family might feel like, yeah, it's more stress, but it's not as significant. So, you know, you, again, that's why I say you got to be careful of kind of how you ask the questions and making sure that you have the people at the table who understand these dynamics so that you can get the information. But you want to know how people are being impacted, mostly financially, health-wise, physical and mental health, um, access to things like technology, um, a quiet space, uh, things that you would need for kids to, to be able to, to be educated. Um, and I'm sure there's things that I'm missing. I'm sure there's things that I'm missing. Um, but the, those are kind of the top three that are on top of my mind at this point. Okay. Um, and just two more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. Um, I, can, I can keep talking, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this, this has been great, amazing information, um, because we're definitely doing some research around, um, you know, uh, students and our higher educations when it comes to, you know, this, this pandemic and what are we going to do moving forward? Um, yeah, so I've been talking mostly about pre-K through 12, but the higher ed students um, in college and beyond, that's another different consideration. Yeah. Some things that, you know, that we've talked about overlap and then there's also another whole. So yeah, that's important distinction to note. Yeah. Um, we also talked about, so we talk a lot about the parents and the students, but speaking of the teachers, and you know, supporting them in their job and their mental health. Why is that important for the school? Um, <laughs> and what do you predict um, getting back into the school system? How this is going to look? Because you know, if you're having kids coming back with you know di different um, different issues they've experienced at home, but you also have teachers that might be experiencing some of these things at home too. How does the school support teachers? First of all, it's important that schools recognize that. It's really funny how um, people think that teachers um, are part of the school. Many teachers will have uh, experiences where they will be at Walmart or Target or a grocery store, you know, somewhere doing something that a regular human being does and a student comes up to them and is like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> people forget that teachers are humans, that we live lives outside of our school, right? So anything that we have talked about that would, that would impact families is also impacting teachers. We have teachers, a lot of teachers who are, because the teaching field does not pay very well. Um, you do not become rich being a teacher. So a lot of the people we were talking about who are lower socioeconomic status are teachers. Um, you know, a lot of people, we have a large black, and brown teaching force. So a lot of the things that we've talked about as far as black and brown populations, that includes teachers. So everything that we've discussed that would include families would include teachers. They are part of that uh, population. And so 
I guess a unique factor is that teachers have a stress on them because they are expected to educate children. And we just talked about the difficulty and inequities around educating children, particularly in this setting and format. So that is translated to teachers, that's transferred onto teachers. Um, the ones that are in the field who are doing it for the right reasons, um, take that personally, right? Like we, 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 the way that we know that we're doing good as teachers is to see the growth in our children, to see the success in our children. That's, that is our feedback, that is our data, um, is to see those children grow and learn and thrive. And if we don't have the ability to see that, like I talked about, we don't have the feedback and the assessment ways that we've had in the school building to determine whether or not children are learning. Teaching is such a relationship-oriented profession. You have that relationship um, uh, uh, disrupted and changed in this way. It's very hard for, for us to be able to um, know what our kids need, to know if they're learning, to know what else is going on with them. So that piece of doing our job well and not knowing if we're doing our job well and um, how doing our job in a completely different way that's hard. So outside of everything else that we talked about, teachers are included in all of that. We have this, we have the stress of trying to do our job with completely different tools in a completely different way in an institution that is still broken. Um, and the ways that we have been used to determining whether or not our kids are thriving have been interrupted and dismantled. And so we're we're struggling with trying to, to even know if we're doing our job well. Um, so that's stressful. That's the just job part of it and adding that to all the other pieces. Like I said, I'm supporting other people's children and my child is not learning. <laughs> but I would like for her to learn and she's learning different things in different ways of you know being able to run around the house and do what she wants to do. Um, so, you know, that's, that's stressful. So again, people have to remember teachers are humans. Teachers, there's teachers who have died. There's teachers who have lost family members. There's teachers who have had COVID-19. There's teachers who um, have had to take care of, of parents. There's teacher who, teachers who have taken care of children in more ways than they had anticipated. There's teachers who have lost jobs or spouse or significant other the ways of, of household income has been lost. There's teachers who don't have the ability to social distance the way others have. There's teachers who don't have access to all of the bells and whistles that other people have. You know, there's teachers that have experienced trauma in the house. There's teachers who have experienced, um, you know, heightened levels of stress. Teachers who have already been, had mental health issues that they are struggling with, with this, you know, more. Everything that we've experienced as, as regular human beings, the teachers are in that group. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they're trying to do their job and do it well. It's very similar, I guess, to, and that's why teachers are essential employees and I'm not taking anything away from those folks that are in on the like ground zero, the nurses and the doctors, but I've heard a lot about them saying how frustrating it is that they're trying to save people's lives and they don't have the protective material that they need or they don't have the resources that they need to do their job well. I think there's teachers that might feel similar to that, that they don't all have the resources that they need um, to do their job well, or they don't know if they're doing their job well because there's no mechanisms that are in place to give them that feedback. Absolutely. So schools have to pay attention to that. Schools have to figure out and realize that academics comes after social, emotional, 
um, you know, uh, well-being, that cognitive learning is only supported by the ability to have the mind open and ready to learn, and that there are conditions as human beings that we need to have for our minds to be open and ready so that we can receive the content. So the quality of relationship, the environment, the care, the reintroduction of socialization, the attending to the social emotional skills, that has to be in place before anyone can get back to doing algebra and phonics and, you know, social studies and world history. And that being a part of, you know, um, integrating everybody back into the school system. So, you know, once we get back in there, when does the actual learning process, you know, ramp up again, you know, because if we're dealing with you know, these little pockets, I guess, you know, we don't know yet as far as what that, you know, what that's going to look like until we actually get in there. Um, and I, I know, I'm sorry. Um, I know on our end of um, at Ujima, you know, we're, <laughs> we're joking about working from home, but just reintegrating us back into a regular work schedule. Cause you know, everybody, you know, your sleep patterns messed up, your eating habits are messed up. Um, so I can only imagine what that looks like for kids, you know, and then having the teachers in the classroom kind of manage that process. Absolutely. And I'll tell you this too, um, working in a predominantly white institution, I've talked to a lot of practitioners who are saying, it's ironic that in the midst of a pandemic, being at home has been a source of healing and not being in those traumatizing buildings has actually been um, a, a positive. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of us that are not necessarily even looking forward to going back into these buildings that are racialized and traumatizing for people. Um, so that's an added layer to that. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know what I would say that, again, we have the opportunity to do something different. A definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. When we go into these school buildings, we have an opportunity to take this history that we've experienced collectively and use that as a teaching mechanism. Using that, and we're supposed to educate, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if we turned our kids into social justice warriors, if we educated them about the experiences that they had and why they had those experiences, why certain people had ability to, to thrive in certain ways and others didn't. What were the social implications that um, supported the way that this rolled out. What were the things that we learned? What could we have done differently? And that can be math, that is science, that is history, that is world language, that is, you know, the xenophobia that has been occurring for people of, of Asian descent around this. That is, you know, that we can take this situation and that's what makes that's what makes learning sticky, as we say in the education world is taking those relevant experiences that people have had and using that to introduce new terms and helping them to understand how to critically think based on what they already know and experience. So we've all had this collective experience. How can we take this and use it to educate all of us and educate our children in a way that we will never have to do this again? We will never have to experience this in this way again. How can we help them make the new new? Mm -hmm. um, that is a great segue into my last question. And that is, um, do you have any suggestions for the community, how we can support um, our educational family, our teachers, mm. our administrators? Um, what are some things we can do to help support you? It is always so amazing at my reaction whenever I hear that question <laughs> back to me, what can we do to support you? I can talk all about what 
needs to be done for everybody else. And it always amazes me how I get such a gut reaction when I hear, what can I do to support you? And it always amazes me how I'm blank. You see, I can talk for a very long time and I have an answer. And then when someone asks, well, what can we do for you? I'm like, oh, I don't even know. I think what, um, if I had to, when you say community, who, who are you talking about exactly? Who do you mean? Um, people who are not in the, um, in the education field. So you're the people that walk into that building every day, the administrators, the teachers, the students. Um, as a parent, as a, I don't know, as a grocery store owner, as a uh, hotel manager, you know, those type of people who are on the outside looking in, what can we do to support? I think I haven't vetted this out. This is just kind of a gut response. Um, I think what would be interesting is all of these people who have had to teach their children or support their children in educational ways at home. If there was any way that they could identify how they could bring their skills, what they learned to the school building, right? To the educational curriculum in a sense. So getting involved, let's say you are a chef and you were at home, you didn't, you know, your, your catering business was out, uh, out of business, you were at home and you did a lot of cooking with your kids. You did a lot of experimenting with flavors and cuisines. That would be amazing to think about how you could help um, bring that into the curriculum. What math could you use? What countries did you visit when you were um, eating those foods? What um, social skills and, and cultural norms, huge, what cultural norms were shared around that, you know, how people eat, what they eat. Um, so if there's, you know, if there's, you know, I have friends who are artists and so their kids are in my daughter's pre, uh, three-year-old class. And when they send pictures of what their kids are doing, all the artist parents have all these amazing art, you know, cause they already had the, the, the resources they already had. I had to go, you know, search for stuff on Amazon with paper and pencil cause I'm not an artist. So the things that you did with your kids just naturally um, off of your own experiences, how, how amazing would it be to share those skills so that your kids can come into the school building with the things that they already experienced at home and share with the school and share with the community um, so that people can learn in different ways. So taking the things that you do well that are naturally good for you, that, that are your zone for you, that you've learned how to share with your kids at home, um, finding out ways to share that with, with the school, um, finding out ways to share your resources, your gifts, your talents with the school, I think would be amazing um, in so many different ways. And I think people are realizing what their talents are and what they're not good at um, with their kids based off of this experience. So mm -hmm. I think that that would, be, uh, that would be great. I think it would be wonderful to have town hall meetings. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for understanding who your population is there, you know, not one size fits all having town hall meetings and inviting the, the community in and saying, Hey, we experienced this together, not in the same ways. People have been impacted in different ways, but we all experienced it together. Um, what did you learn about this experience that can help us? What ways can you, uh, you know, what ways can you support us? What ways can we support you? Like I said, it's always, it should be always a symbiotic relationship. So um, getting people together and thinking of just thinking about the question, you may not have to have the answer, maybe just asking the question to the families, you know, what can we do to support the schools? What can we do to support the teachers? What can we do to support the students? 
um, asking the people who want to support that question and letting them come up with the answer. Um, crowdsource that, right? To me, the more the voices that are closer to the issue that are involved in the question can more easily come up with the solution. So, um, you know, ask that question, ask that question to the people who are interested in answering it and you'll get your answer. And it'll be more in line with the people that you all are connected to and serving than anything I could say or anyone else could say. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm hoping that um, as a community, we can definitely come up with, you know, a list of some ways that we can support um, our education community, because I feel like, um, you know, obviously we're going to need support, but our students and teachers are very important um, to, to the growth and the well-being of, of, you know, how we thrive. So I'm definitely going to take that into consideration and take that back to my organization and just see as we're moving forward, what are some ways that we can support um, educators and administrators during this process and afterwards. So um, I thank relationship you. And question asking, communication relationships. Start with that. Okay, absolutely. Um, I thank you so much for the interview. Like we can, we can definitely go on and on. I feel like maybe we probably should have done a two-parter and breaking down some of these things because you know we're you know talking about uh, structural, um, structural uh, racism, institutional. Uh, racism, just these different things that we can break down within the education system that I think um, the story needs to be told. Um, so we can definitely uh, circle back with that because I do have some other questions, but, you know, I want to give our, you know, listeners a chance to, you know, kind of comment on what they already have heard. And then from there, maybe we can build on another topic. So again, uh, Dr. Lana Bates, thank you so much for um, your time and giving me the interview. Thank you. Not going nowhere anytime soon, it seems like. <laughs> No, <laughs> it doesn't look that way at all for us either. Nope. So um, we'll be here. Um, all right. Well, we're going to wrap up the interview. Um, if our listeners have any questions, please feel free again to email us at ujimainfo at ujimacommunity.org. I know I butchered the email address earlier in the show. You would think I know it by now because I've said it so many times. But um, again, ujimainfo at ujimacommunity.org, or you can visit the website at ujimacommunity.org. Again, thank you, Dr. Bates. Uh, we will definitely, definitely be talking to you again. Um, and that's a wrap. We'll talk to you guys soon.